Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, we continue part two of P.D. James, The Private Patient. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. And now the omnibus edition of The Private Patient by P.D. James. Following the murder of Rhoda Gradwin at an exclusive clinic, Dalgleish has tracked down the driver of a car spotted near the crime scene. Stephen Collinsby has a connection to one of the clinic's staff, Sharon Bateman, formerly known as Shirley Beale. When exactly did Shirley Beale get in touch with you? Last week, the 12th, uh, Wednesday. That's when I received a letter from her. She'd seen a TV programme I'd appeared on, something about secondary education, and she'd recognised me. She noted down the name of this school. Darling Stephen, you haven't forgotten me, have you? I haven't forgotten you. I'd never do that. I still love you as much as ever. And I need to see you, Stephen. We must meet. I'm working now down in Dorset in a big ass. It's called Chevrel Manor. And there's a lovely big parking space just outside the gates by the stone circle. That's where we'll meet at midnight on Friday. You will come, won't you, Stephen? Because someone I know really wants to tell the world all about us. About you, and me, and Lucy, and how you threw me aside. And I really don't want to let them do that. The letter horrified me. I couldn't imagine what she meant by still loving me. She'd never loved me, or shown the slightest sign of affection for me, nor I for her. I didn't know what to do. I should probably have told my wife or even inform the police. But could I make them believe the truth about my relationship with Lucy or with Shirley? I decided that the best plan, at least at first, would be to see her and try to reason her out of her delusions. So you met her? Yes. We met at the Stones, just as she said. I didn't touch her, even to shake hands. She repelled me. We sat side by side in the car... I've always loved you, Stephen. You must have known that. Certainly not. Yeah? Even when you were so infatuated with Lucy, even then I loved you. Of course you knew. I did not. Why do you think I killed her? You said she was too pretty. That's what I said, but really I was jealous. Jealous of all the time you two spent together. I wanted it to stop. I wanted you for myself, that's why. Good God, Shirley. Do you know what you're saying? Of course. It's the truth. And now I've served my sentence, that means I'm free to love you. Oh, Shirley, you cannot... I want to marry you and have your children. And that's what's going to happen. Shirley, listen to me. I'm married. We have a little boy. We're very happy. Married? What does that matter? You can get a divorce. We can be together at last. I'll have your babies. And I'll look after your little boy. Everything will be fine. Look after my child? 
The thought of even having her in the house appalled me. All I felt was the compulsion to get away, to buy time, so I lied. I said I talked to my wife, but she mustn't hope, because there was none. That seemed to satisfy her. She said goodbye, got out of the car, and walked away into the darkness. Did you at any time enter the manor? No. Did she ask you to? No. Did you, while you were parked, see or hear anyone else? No one. I drove away as soon as she left. I saw no one. So that explained the unbolted door on the night of the murder. Miss Bateman, you have the right to ask for a solicitor to be present if you think it necessary. Why would I want the solicitor? I ain't done nothing wrong. I told you everything I know on Sunday. Not everything. You didn't say then that you left the manor on Friday night. You met someone at about midnight and we know who it was. We've spoken to Mr Collinsby. You can't pin it on Stephen. He never killed that woman. He wouldn't kill anyone. He's good and he's kind. And I love him. I've always loved him. I never thought I'd see him again, but now he's back in my life. I want to be with him. I know I can make him happy. But you threatened him. You said you knew someone who wanted to tell the world about when he was living with your family. What did you mean? Nothing. I just said it. I thought it would make him meet me. And it did, didn't it? You arranged for Mr Collinsby to meet you at the parking space for the stones and he came. What happened? Nothing happened. He said he was married, but he was going to ask his wife for a divorce. Then I went back to the house and he drove away. Did he go back to the manor with you? No, he didn't. Why would he? I knew my way, didn't I? Oh. I see what you're at. You're protecting all the others. And you're trying to pin the murder on Stephen and me. Well, it won't wash. One of those lot up the ass, they killed that woman. I don't know who it was, and I don't know why. But it wasn't Stephen, and it wasn't me. Candace Westall came into the front room of the old police cottage in a jacket and scarf and wearing her gardening gloves. She took them off and placed them large and mud-caked on the table between us. The meaning was crude, but plain. She had been called from a necessary job to answer unnecessary questions. In 2002, Rhoda Gradwin wrote an article dealing with plagiarism. In it, she attacked a young writer, Annabel Skelton, who subsequently took her own life. What was your relationship with Annabel Skelton? Annabel Skelton was a dear friend. I would say I loved her, except that you'd misinterpret the remark. All friendships these days seem to be defined in terms of sexuality. She was my pupil at university, but her talent wasn't for classics. It was for writing. I encouraged her to complete her first novel and submit it for publication. Did you know at the time that she'd simply copied parts of it from an earlier work by another writer? I did not. Not until I read Gradwin's article. It must have surprised and distressed you. Yes, Inspector. Both those things. Did you take any action? See, Rhoda Gradwin, write to the magazine. I saw Gradwin. We met briefly in her agent's office at her request. It was a mistake. She was, of course, totally unrepentant. I didn't know that as we were speaking, Annabel was already dead. 
She hanged herself three days after the article appeared. The day after her death, I received a postcard. There were only eight words. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Did you hold Rhoda Gradwin responsible? She was responsible. She murdered my friend, whether that was her intention or not. But I didn't take private revenge after five years. I didn't kill Rhoda Gradwin. But I can't feel even a minute's regret that she's dead. Normally, the three days of the week when no patients were operated on and George Chandler Pole was in London gave Candace Westrell and Letty Frensham time to work on the accounts and sort out any domestic problems. But now, on Tuesday morning, the fourth day after the murder, he was still at the manor, his London list postponed. Even so, there was always work to be done, and Letty and Candace were at their desks shortly after nine. Chevrolet Manor. Yes, uh, just a moment. It's for you, a man, Jeremy something. Yes? Uh, look, we're busy in the office here, and frankly, we haven't time to chase after Robin Boyson. What? Oh, all right, someone will go around to the guest cottage. We'll, we'll tell him to ring you. Goodbye. That's Robin's business partner, Jeremy Coxon. He needs Robin back urgently. He says he can't reach him. The mobile rings, but he only gets the aunt's phone message. If he didn't want to be disturbed, why not turn off the mobile altogether? I suppose someone had better take a look. When I left Stone Cottage this morning, his car was there and the curtains were drawn. He might be sleeping off a hangover. I'll go. I could do with a breath of fresh air. All right. I suppose I'd better come with you. It was a drab and sunless morning and they walked to Rose Cottage through a damp mist. The front door was unlocked and they went through to the kitchen. The air was rancid with the smell of unwashed plates. This looks more like yesterday's supper than today's breakfast. Let's look upstairs. The front bedroom looked as though it had been ransacked. Clothes and underwear lay around on the bed and the floor. This looks ominously like a hasty departure. It does. But taken with the state of the kitchen, I think all we can safely assume is that Robin is exceptionally untidy. Anyway, he isn't in the cottage. No, he isn't here. Do you think we'd better search next door before doing anything else? All right. Let's go in the back way. Robin? Robin? Well, he's certainly not in here. This was once the pantry, now we use it for storage. Chairs, cardboard boxes, the old freezer, that table. I'll have a look upstairs. You take the sitting room. Robin! Although very clean, the cottage struck Letty as almost deliberately cheerless and unwelcoming. It was as if, after their father's death, Candace and Marcus had wanted to emphasise that for them, Stone Cottage could never be a home. Anything? No. You? Nothing. Well, I, I suppose... Candace began to walk towards the garden door. Letty, turning to follow her, paused. Then, without much thought, she unlatched and lifted the lid of the freezer. Time stopped. She stared down at what lay beneath. Then the lid fell out of her hands and she slumped over the freezer, shaking uncontrollably. She gasped and tried to form words, but no sound came. And then Candace was pushing her aside, forcing the lid wide open. 
Robin Boyton was lying curled on his back, both legs raised stiffly in the air. His feet must have been pressed against the lid. His knuckles were bruised. In his desperation he had beaten his hands against the unyielding metal. The blue eyes wide and lifeless as a doll's, the lips drawn back, his dead face was a mask of terror. Oh. We must get the police. Use my mobile. Ring George at the manor. He'll be able to contact Commander Dalglish here. George? I'm phoning from Stone Cottage. Candice is here with me. This is absolutely appalling, but Robin Boyton's dead. We've just found his body in the disused freezer. I know. Could you get Commander Dalgleish as soon as possible? I'd better say nothing to anyone else until he's arrived. How did you both come to be in Stone Cottage this morning? We were looking for Robin. His business partner rang the office at about 9.40 to say that he hadn't been able to contact him since yesterday morning and was worried. Which of you opened the freezer? I did. I lifted the lid on impulse, almost without thinking. It never occurred to me that Robin might be dead. Neither of us mentioned the possibility. Miss Westall, I'm afraid that for the present, and probably for some days, Stone Cottage will have to be closed. Until we know more, it's impossible to say whether Mr Boyton died as a result of an accident, whether he committed suicide, or whether he was murdered. There'll be a forensic pathologist and technical officers coming here, but care will be taken not to cause damage. You can pull the place apart for all I care. I've finished with it. A.D., who was occupied at Stone Cottage, left the initial questioning to me and Benton. It was 3.30 before we arrived at the manor, and again we used the library for most of the interviews. Dr Glenister's preliminary estimate was that Boyton had died the previous day sometime between 2 o'clock and 6. So I asked people where they were from 1 o'clock until dinner, which was served at 8. Nearly everyone could provide an alibi for part of the time, but none for the whole seven hours. So by late afternoon, Benton and I felt that little had been achieved. It was around 5 o'clock before we got round to seeing the boss docs. We went down to the kitchen and they made tea for us. They chatted on and I let the talk flow. It was nearly six o'clock when the breakthrough came. Poor man, said Kim. He must have climbed into the freezer and then the lid fell down on him. You know, he seems sort of fascinated by that freezer. And it isn't even in his cottage. Do you remember, Dean, all those questions he asked when he was last here? How long it had been in Stone Cottage? Was it still working? Did Miss Westall use it? Funny him taking an interest, though. Didn't even working. It broke in August. Hello, sir? Kate, I want you and Benton over here at the old police cottage. Candace Westall wants to make a statement. Right, sir. Commander Dalglish, I have an explanation for what could have happened, for why Robin got into that freezer. It doesn't reflect well on me, but I think you should know of it. To explain the background, I'll need to disclose some family affairs which aren't relevant to Rhoda Gradwin's murder. Go on. Some of this may already be known to you, if Robin spoke to you about his relationship with the family. He was, as he was fond of proclaiming, first cousin to Marcus and me. His mother Sophie was our father's only sister. Our family has always undervalued its daughters. 
Sophie didn't have a happy childhood and she left home as soon as she could. How old was she when she married Keith Boyton? Just 21 and she was pregnant. I only met him once. He had a certain superficial charm but I found him repellent. Anyway, according to Robin, his mother died when he was seven and about ten years later Keith found himself another woman and emigrated to Australia. No one has heard from him since. When did Robin Boyton start making regular contact with you? When Marcus took the job here with Chandler Pole and we moved farther into Stone Cottage. Robin started having brief holidays here in the guest cottage, obviously hoping he could kindle some cousinly interest in Marcus or myself. Frankly, it wasn't there. But I did have a slight conscience about him. From time to time, I'd help him out with small sums when he asked, claiming desperation. And then, about a month ago, he got an extraordinary idea into his head. My father's death followed my grandfather's by only 35 days. If it had been less than 28 days, there would have been a difficulty about the will. Because you can't inherit if you die within 28 days of the testator. If my father hadn't inherited our grandfather's estate, obviously there'd have been no fortune to pass down to us. And if he hadn't, Robin would probably have had a legitimate claim to an equal share of our grandfather's estate with Marcus and me. So... Robin obtained a copy of Grandfather's will and conceived the bizarre idea that our father had indeed died sometime before the 28 days were up and that Marcus and I had concealed his body in the freezer in Stone Cottage. <laughs> then the idea was we'd thought him out after a couple of weeks and called in old Dr Stenhouse to write the death certificate. When did he first put forward this idea to you? A few weeks before Rhoda Gradwin's operation. He came down for a few days. As soon as he arrived, he gave me an old paperback, a thriller by Cyril Hare called Untimely Death. Actually, I'd read it many years ago. It was first published as He Should Have Died Hereafter. It's a detective story in which the time of death is falsified. I knew then what he was up to. <laughs> but surely the idea was fantastic. Can he possibly have believed there was truth in it? Oh, he believed all right. And the idea wasn't as ridiculous as it sounds. My father was an extremely difficult patient and was adamant that he wanted no visitors. I looked after him with the help of a retired nurse who is now living in Canada and an elderly maid who died just over a year ago. Robin probably assumed that we'd bribed the two helpers. There was, though, one fact he didn't know. On the night before he died, my father asked to see our parish priest, the Reverend Clement Matheson. He came at once, driven by his sister Marjorie. Neither of them will have forgotten the evening, and happily both are still alive. But I have a second witness. I paid a short visit to Toronto ten days ago to see Grace Holmes, the retired nurse who'd helped me during my father's last illness. She'd been left nothing in his will. And now that probate has been granted, I wanted to give her a lump sum to compensate for that last terrible year. She gave me a letter, which I have passed to my solicitor, stating that she was with my father on the day he died. But once you had this information, surely you told Robin Boyton about it as soon as possible? I should have done. But I thought it would be amusing to keep quiet and let him dig himself into his hole even further. I think that Robin was working himself up to a final accusation, possibly a suggestion that I should hand over a specific sum in exchange for his silence. I believe that's why he stayed on here after Rhoda Gradwin's death. 
I don't know why he climbed into the freezer. It could have been to see how feasible it was for my father's body to be placed there. Jeremy Coxon's house in Maida Vale was one of a row of pretty Edwardian villas with gardens leading down to the canal. The door was opened by a thin, tall man in his thirties. Expensively dressed with a careful casualness, he had the look of a male model prepared for a camera shoot. We showed our warrant cards. Mr Coxon? Oh, thank God you've come. I've been frantic. Come in. They've told me nothing, absolutely nothing, except that Robin's been found dead. Of course, he'd rung me to tell me about Rhoda Gradwin's death. And now Robin. I have to know, was it suicide? Did he leave a note? Well, do sit down, both of you. There was no note. Would you be surprised if it was suicide? God, yes. Robin had his difficulties, but he wouldn't take that way out. I, I only asked about a note because any alternative is even less believable. He had no enemies. And there were no particular difficulties at present? Nothing. Obviously, he was devastated by Rhoda's death. On top of losing a dear friend, he'd been hoping she'd offer some financial support for our business. But then he said that he had plans, that he was expecting money, big money. He wouldn't say where from, but he was excited, happier than I'd seen him for many years. Very different from when he came back from the manor three weeks ago. Then he seemed depressed. So why the secrecy? Isn't it time you told me how he died? We don't know for certain, Mr Coxon. His body was in a disused freezer in the cottage next to where he was staying. Was the lid open? The lid was shut. We don't yet know how your friend came to be in there. It could have been an accident. You mean you believe that Robin could have climbed into the freezer for some reason and then got trapped inside? It's a possibility, sir. It isn't. Let me tell you something about Robin. He was seriously claustrophobic. He never travelled by air or on the underground. He'd walk up 14 flights of stairs rather than get into a lift. I can't give you any proof, but you have to believe me about one thing. Robin would never have got into a freezer alive. This was no accident and it certainly wasn't suicide. Make no mistake. What you're investigating is murder. Before Benton and I left Jeremy Coxon's house in Maida Vale, I asked to see Robin Boynton's room. It was an uninviting spectacle. The room smelled unpleasantly of the unwashed clothes that were piled high on the bed. A pedestal desk stood between the two windows and we made for that. What a mess. We did the man hoard every piece of paper that came his way. Take a look at this. What is it? Only a paperback. Untimely death by Cyril Hare. Isn't that the crime novel? Precisely. The body in the freezer. There's something else in there. One sheet of paper. Looks like a photocopy of a will. The paper, printed on both sides, was headed The Last Will and Testament of Peregrine Richard Westall. On the rear it was dated Witness my hand this 7th day of July 2005. Attached to it was a receipt for £5 from Hoban Probate Office. The whole document was handwritten, a black, upright hand, strong in places but becoming more shaky in the last paragraph. The first paragraph appointed his son, Marcus, and his daughter, Candace, together with his solicitors, as executors. The second said he wished to be cremated with no religious observances. 
the third bequeathed all his books to Winchester College and everything else in equal measure to his son and daughter. The will was signed and the signature was witnessed by Elizabeth Barnes, describing herself as a domestic servant and giving Stone Cottage as her address, and by Grace Holmes, a nurse of Rosemary Cottage, Stoke Cheverell. A fruitful trip, I'd say. Now, Coxon says that Robin Boyton was somewhat dejected after his visit to the manor on the 27th of November. I wonder why. Well, Coxon told us that the day Rhoda Gradwin was admitted for her operation, well, Boyton was excited and speaking about the prospect of big money. Mm -hmm. And it's about then that he sends his text message to Miss Gradwin, imploring her to see him, saying that the matter is urgent. So what happened between his first and second visits to change the whole situation? I know. He went to Hoban Probate Office and obtained a copy of Peregrine Westall's will. Precisely. The will. But how could that result in a big financial gain for Boynton? Well, suppose that when Candice Westall demolished his allegation about freezing the body, she somehow made him suspect that she wanted no further discussion about her father's will. Perhaps she offered him money if he shut up and went away. And that aroused his suspicions. You're thinking of forgery? It's a possibility. It's time to take a look at that will. Which of you... um... I've got it. Ah. (laughs) Nicely dated, I see. Hmm. Anything about the date strike, either of you? Yes, we both spotted it. The 7th of July, 2005, the day of the London bombings. Not a very sensible date to choose if you were forging a document. Most people remember what they were doing on 7-7. So, let's assume that both the date and the will itself are in Professor Westall's handwriting. That leaves the signatures, his and those of the two women. Neither of them is available. Candice Westall told us that the old housemate is dead and the nurse... Grace Holmes. ...is now living in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, suspecting that Boynton is now focusing his attention on the will, Candice flies off to Toronto ostensibly to give Miss Holmes a contribution from Professor Westall's bequest. Something that could easily have been arranged by a letter, telephone or email. Mm. So why was it so important to see Grace Holmes in person? I reckon Professor Westall was in the habit of changing his will. He may have written this one, leaving everything to his son and daughter, but what if he never got round to signing it? Do we know what the previous will stipulated? We do. I phoned Professor Westall's solicitors today while you were away. The whole estate was divided into two equal parts. Robin Boyton was to receive half of the estate in recognition that his parents and he had been unfairly treated by the family. The remaining half was to be divided equally between Marcus and Candace. Did Boyton know that? I very much doubt it. I hope to learn more on Friday. I've made an appointment with Philip Kershaw, the lawyer who dealt with that will and also the most recent one. He's a sick man and lives in a retirement home outside Bournemouth, but he's agreed to see me. At last we're getting somewhere. But without one piece of hard physical evidence, either about the possible forgery of those names or the deaths of Rhoda Gradwin and Robin Boyton. And to complicate matters, we have a convicted murderer in the manor. Suddenly, an idea came into my head. It was late, but Jeremy Coxon was a night owl whose mobile might still be on. He was in the pub, and when he gathered who was calling, he asked me to hold on for a moment while he went outside. Is there any news? None at present, I'm afraid. 
I'm sorry to call so late, but this is important to the investigation. Do you remember what you were doing on 7-7? You mean the day of the London bombings? Yes, 7th of July 2005. Well, of course, who doesn't? What about Robin Boyton? Did he tell you what he was up to? Well, he happened to be in central London, quite close to one of the incidents. Bored me rigid for days about his narrow escape. <laughs> he turned up that night at my Hampstead flat. Oh, it must have been oh, just before 11 kept me up for hours telling me about his day of coincidences. Coincidences? Why? What happened to him? Well, first of all, he just missed being in the bus that was blown up. He'd been in Tottenham Court Road and was very close to the explosion. Really? And then he was clutched by some old biddy who was pretty shocked. He had to spend some time quietening her down. In the course of all this, she told him that she lived at Stoke Cheverell, of all places, but was staying with a friend in London. Did he tell you her name? Afraid not. Did he tell you anything else about her? Well, I'm pretty sure he said that she was helping his cousins look after some old relative that they've been landed with. Uh, sorry, I can't be more helpful. If the woman who Boyton met was Elizabeth Barnes, there was no way she could have signed the will on the 7th of July 2005. But had it been Elizabeth Barnes, how could we prove that one way or another? I went to bed, but not to sleep. It was after three when I accepted at last that I had no hope of sleep. Perhaps a brisk walk down the lane would tie me sufficiently to make it worth going back to bed. I strode out under a sky freckled with high stars, hearing nothing but my own footsteps. Then, approaching the manor, I saw distant tongues of flame. Who would be making a bonfire at three in the morning? Something was burning in the circle of stones. Taking my mobile from my pocket, I called Kate as I raced, heart pounding towards the fire. The burning of Mary Kite back in 1654 had been at three o'clock in the afternoon of the 20th of December. But the afternoon wasn't possible for this final ceremony of identification, which would silence Mary Kite's troubled voice forever and give her peace. Three o'clock in the morning would have to do. Mary Kite would understand. What was important was to pay this final tribute, to reenact as closely as she dared those appalling final minutes. When her watch showed 2.40, she was ready to leave. She put on her darkest coat, a large box of matches already in the pocket, and left the manor carrying two bags of kindling with a curled washing line slung over her shoulder. It was a cold night, the stars high, the wind rising. She moved like a ghost down the lime walk. Soon the moon-blanched stones were fully in sight. She made her way to the ditch and soon found the paraffin can she'd put there earlier. And now she began to construct a circle of wood inside the stones. Bending and working methodically, she at last completed it to her satisfaction. Then, unscrewing the cap and holding the paraffin can with great care, she bent double and made her way around the circle of kindling, anointing each stick. Next, taking the washing line, she bound herself to the central stone. Taking the matches from her pocket, she stood rigid for a moment, her eyes closed. Mary Kite, this is for you. This is to tell you that I know you were innocent. They're taking me away from you. This is the last time I can visit you. I do this in your memory. She struck a match and threw it towards the circle of wood. 
but the wind blew out the flame almost as soon as it had been lit. She tried again, and then again with shaking hands. She was close to sobbing. It wasn't going to work. She stared up the avenue. The great trunks of the limes grew and closed in together. Their top branches merged and tangled, fracturing the moon. And now... And now they were at the wall, jostling against it, gasping mouths like a row of death heads, screaming hatred. Suddenly the shouting stopped. A figure detached itself, came over the wall and moved up to her. I knew you'd come. I knew you wouldn't fail, Mary. But it won't work the way you're doing it. I'll help. You see, I'm the executioner. The executioner selected a slender piece of wood, brought it over, and shielding it from the wind, lit it and held it high. Then, moving over to the stone circle, she thrust it amongst the kindling. Immediately there was a rush of flames, and the fire ran like a living creature, spluttering, crackling, and sending out sparks. The night came alive, and she experienced a moment of extraordinary triumph, as if the past, hers and Mary Kite's, were burning away. The executioner moved closer to her. Why, she wondered, were the hands so pinkly pale, so translucent? Why the surgical gloves? And then the hands took hold of the washing line and with one swift movement curled it round her neck. There was a vicious tug as it tightened. She felt a cold splash on her face. Something was being thrown over her body. The reek of paraffin intensified, its fumes choking her. Barely conscious, she slumped against the rope and waited for death. Mary Kite's death. And then she heard what sounded like a sob, followed by a great cry. She saw an arc of fire and the hedge exploded into flame. And now she was alone. Half fainting, she began pulling at the cord round her neck. But there was no strength to lift her arms. She slumped against the bonds, her legs buckling, and knew nothing more. And then suddenly there were voices. A blaze of torches dazzled her eyes. Someone was vaulting over the stone wall, running to get her, leaping over the dying fire. There were arms around her. You're all right. You're safe. Sharon, can you understand me? You're safe. Even before Dalgleish reached the Chevrolet stones, he heard the sound of the departing car. But there was no point in making a desperate dash to follow. Rescuing Sharon from the flames had been the top priority. Kate? I'm over here, sir. Uh, Mr Chandler, Pole and the rest are just carrying Sharon back to the manor with them. Good. Kate, look after things here, will you? Benton and I are going after Miss Westall. I want to come with you. Is that you, Mr Westall? I need to be there when you find her. I have to come. Yes, come with us. Now tell me, where is she likely to go? We have to know. She'll go to the sea. She loves the sea. She'll go where she likes to swim. Kimmeridge Bay. But you can see, she's not here. Her car isn't here. We could try the other beach. She doesn't swim there. It's here she'd come. She is here. She's out there somewhere. By those rocks. She must be. Candace! Candace! 
No, she's not, Mr. Westall. Your sister's somewhere else. Come away now, there's nothing you can do. Douglas? I see. Right, go ahead, I'll join you. The local police have found your sister's car. She isn't with it. What? Benton, Sir? you and I will join the search for her as soon as we've dropped Mr. Westall off at the manor. When they drew up at the front door of the manor, Westall allowed himself to be led in by Benton and handed over to the waiting Letty Frensham. He followed her like an obedient child into the library. After a while, he said, Please leave me alone now. I'm all right, but I need to be alone. Just let me know when they find her. Letty placed a cushion on a stool. Lie back and put your feet up. I'll be back in an hour. Try to sleep. And then she was gone. But he had no intention of sleeping. He made his way quietly out through the great hall and to the back of the house and left by the side door. He felt neither the strength of the wind nor the cold as he passed through the formal garden to the stone chapel. As he approached through the dawning light, he saw that there was a dark shape on the stones outside the door. Something had been spilled, something which shouldn't be there. Confused, he knelt down and touched its stickiness. And then he could smell it, and raising his hands, saw that they were covered with blood. Candice! 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 He beat against the door Candace! until his strength gave out, and he sank slowly to his knees, his red palms pressed against the unyielding wood. And it was there, still kneeling in her blood, that the searchers found him twenty minutes later. Benton threw himself against the chapel door until it burst open against the body. As Adie and I went in, she was lying curled like a sleeping child, the knife beside her right hand. There was only one cut in her wrist, but it was deep. Something was grasped in her left hand. What's that she's holding? Benton, would you... Uh... I'll try, sir. There. It's a memory stick, sir. There's something she wants to tell us. The memory stick contained nothing but one audio file. Now AD played it on his laptop and we listened as a team. I'm speaking to Commander Adam Dalglish and what I'm saying is the truth. I've known for over 24 hours that you were going to arrest me. My plan to burn Sharon at the Witch's Stone was my last desperate attempt to save myself from a trial and life sentence. If I'd succeeded, I'd have been safe, even if you had suspected the truth. Her death would have looked like the suicide of a neurotic murderer, a suicide I hadn't arrived in time to prevent. Oh, yes, I knew all about Sharon. There was another reason why she had to die. She saw me as I was leaving the manor after I'd killed Rhoda Gradwin. Now Sharon, who always had a secret to keep, knew someone else's secret. She told me what she planned to do at the Stones, her final tribute to Mary Kite before she was forced to leave the manor. And why wouldn't she tell me? We'd both killed. We were bound together by that terrible crime. But then, in the end, after I'd wound the rope round her neck and poured paraffin over her, I couldn't strike the match. 
I realized in that moment what I had become. There's little to tell you about the death of Rhoda Gradwin. I killed her to avenge the death of a dear friend, Annabelle Skelton. But did I go to her room that night to kill her? I had, after all, done all in my power to dissuade Chandler Pole from admitting her to the manor. Afterwards, I thought perhaps I meant only to terrify her, to tell her the truth about herself, to let her know that she'd destroyed a young life and a great talent. But on the other hand, why did I wear those latex gloves, which I afterwards cut up in the bathroom of one of the empty suites? No. When I lifted my hand from her neck, I felt a sort of liberation, as if I'd washed away all the frustration of the past years. I'll just hold it there for a second. Do we believe her? Not me. Not about the Gradwin murder. It doesn't sound credible. I agree. Not sufficient motive. There's more to it. Mm. She's telling us the truth, but not the whole truth. Let's push on. As for Robin Boyton, he devised this extraordinary idea that we'd concealed the time of my father's death by freezing his body. I doubt this was his idea. This too came from Rhoda Gradwin, and they planned to pursue it together. The plan was, of course, ridiculous. I didn't tell my brother what Gradwin and Robin were planning. And after I'd killed her, I decided to play along until Robin was thoroughly implicated. Then I'd have sufficient evidence to charge him with blackmail. I asked him to meet me in the old pantry. I asked him what he had in mind. And he said he had a moral right to a third of the estate. I pointed out that he could hardly reveal that I'd falsified the date of death without himself being accused of blackmail. I offered one quarter of the estate with 5,000 as a start. Because I needed his fingerprints on the lid of the freezer, I said that the cash was inside it. He might have had doubts, but he had to look. When he lifted the lid, I suddenly grasped him by the legs and toppled him in. Then I closed the lid and fastened the clasp. I can't feel sorry for either of my victims. I doubt whether either of them will be mourned or missed. And that's all I have to say, except to make it plain that at all times I worked entirely alone. I told no one, consulted no one, asked for no one's help. I shall die with no regrets and with no fear. That's it. Trouble is, I find difficulty in believing it. What in particular, sir? Boyton's death, for one. There's something odd about her account. You mean all that detail? Much more than when she tells us about Rhoda Gradwin. Do you think she's trying to divert our attention from something far more damaging than that story of freezing her father's corpse? You've got it, Kate. I think she is. And what she's trying to conceal are those forged signatures on her father's will. She's so determined to do so that she dies with her explanation clapped in her hand. I think we're done here. You should both be able to get away by tomorrow afternoon. Officially, at least, the investigation's over. Though I do have this appointment tomorrow with the Westall solicitor, Philip Kershaw. By midday on Friday, Benton and I had made our farewells. 
AD had already said his formal goodbyes to Mr Chandler Pole and the small group at the manor and had driven off to Bournemouth to interview Philip Kershaw. He planned to return to the old police cottage to collect his baggage on his way back to London. Now, as Benton drove us out of the manor gates, I asked him to stop off at the cottage and wait in the car so that I could check that the Dorset police had removed all their equipment. AD's grip was downstairs, ready packed, and I knew his murder bag would be with him in the car. The only equipment remaining to be moved was his laptop, still plugged in so he could check for any last messages. On impulse, I typed in my own password. A single email came up on the screen. Dearest Kate, an email's not the best way to say something important, but I have to be sure this reaches you. I've been living like a monk for the last six months to prove something to myself, and now I know that you were right. Life's too short to waste on people we don't care for and much too precious to give up on love. There's one thing I want you to know. The girl you saw me with was the first and last since we became lovers. You know I'd never lie to you. The beds in a monastery are very hard and lonely and the food is terrible. My love, Piers. I tapped in my reply. Your message received and understood. The case here is finished and I'll be back in Wapping by seven. Why not say goodbye to the abbot and come home? Kate. Huntingdon Lodge, standing on a high cliff some three miles west of Bournemouth, was approached by a short drive which curved between cedar trees and rhododendron bushes to an impressively pillared front door. There was no need to knock at Mr Kershaw's room. It was already open with Philip Kershaw awaiting me. Mr Kershaw, I believe you acted for the Westall family in the matter of both the grandfather's and the father's wills. Not I, Commander. The family firm. I retired and took up residence here 11 months ago. The work is done by my younger brother in the office in Poole. He did, however, keep me informed. So you weren't present when this will of Peregrine Westall's was drawn up or signed? No member of the firm was. Neither the original nor a copy was sent to us at the time it was made. No one knew of its existence until three days after Peregrine Westall died. And then? Candace found it. In a locked drawer in the bedroom. <laughs> well, as you may know, Peregrine Westall was rather in the habit of drawing up wills. And when you saw the will, you had no doubts about its validity? None. And I have none now. Why should I? No one familiar with Peregrine Westall's hand could possibly doubt that he wrote this will. What about the will which preceded this? Uh, that was made in the month before Peregrine Westall left his nursing home and moved to Stone Cottage uh, with Candace and Marcus. Oh, you may as well have a sight of it. Uh, that too was handwritten. It'll give you the opportunity to compare the writing. Uh, here, as you see, Peregrine Westall revokes the previous will and leaves half the estate to his nephew Robin Boyton and the remaining half to be divided equally between Marcus and Candice. If you compare the handwriting on the two wills, you'll see they're the same. Are you completely satisfied that Candice Westall murdered both Robin Boyton and Rhoda Gradwin and attempted to murder Sharon Bateman? Yes, to the first part of your question. I don't believe the whole of Miss Westall's confession, but it's true as regards Miss Gradwin and Mr Boyton, and she confessed to planning the murder of Sharon Bateman. I see. 
I think that by then she must have made up her mind to kill herself. Once she suspected that I knew the truth about the last will, she couldn't risk a cross-examination in court. The truth about the last will? But do you know the truth? I believe that all three signatures were forged. You have your confession, you have your murderess, the case is closed. The money was bequeathed to the two people who had the best right to it. But I don't like unfinished business. I needed to know if I was right about those forged signatures and, if possible, to understand why Candace Westall did it. Now I think I do. Or is that too arrogant a claim? Yes, Commander, I think it is. Arrogant and perhaps even impertinent. Why do you say that? Tell me, are there any circumstances in which you would break the law in order to benefit someone important to you? Or perhaps to right a wrong? Forgive me if you find this impertinent, but would the important person to you be Candace Westall? I'm going to tell you something that I've never told another human being, and never shall. I do it because I believe that with you it will be safe. As you wish. Basically, it's a commonplace story. It happens everywhere. Twenty-five years ago, when I was 38 and Candice was 18, she had my child. Your child? I first met Candice when I became a partner in the firm and took over Peregrine Westall's affairs. I visited the family house often enough to see how he dominated and bullied his family. Candice in particular. How did your relationship begin? Oh, we met by pure chance in a bookshop in Oxford. I invited her to have coffee with me. Without her father, she seemed to come alive. She talked and I listened. We enjoyed each other's company and we agreed to meet again. Soon I took to driving to Oxford and taking her for lunch outside the city. And it turned into a love affair. We had sex only once. I think afterwards we both knew it was a mistake, but, but we understood why it had happened. I was kind fond of her, available, and I was the ideal partner for a first sexual experience, which she both wanted and feared. She could feel safe with me. And from that one encounter? Yes. Oh, we were unlucky, I suppose. How did you handle it? Well, Candice managed to conceal the pregnancy until the start of the long summer vacation. And before the truth could be discovered... She went abroad. Two months later, she came back, secretly, and had the baby in a London nursing home. It wasn't difficult for me to arrange private fostering, followed by adoption. So you were rid of the baby and no one the wiser? In a sense. Admittedly, Candace didn't see Annabelle again, and even the name was chosen by the prospective foster parents, until the girl was 18. Annabelle. Annabelle Skelton. Candace must have kept in touch, however indirectly, without ever acknowledging that the child was hers. And how about you? Did you see Candace again? Yes, only once. For the first and last time after 25 years. On Friday the 7th of December, she came back from visiting the old nurse, Grace Holmes, in Canada, the surviving witness to Peregrine's will... She went out to pay her a sum of money for the help she gave in nursing Peregrine Westall. I think she said £10,000. 
Candice was also anxious to have the nurse's evidence about the date of her father's death. Oh, she had told me about Robin Boyton's ludicrous allegation. You know, that the body had been concealed in a freezer until 28 days after her grandfather's death. Well, now, now here... Yes, here it is. This is the letter that Grace Holmes wrote and gave her. Dear Sir, Miss Candace Westall has asked me to write confirming the date of the death of her father, Professor Peregrine Westall. This occurred on the 5th of March, 2007. Two days earlier, on the 3rd, after it had been getting much worse, Dr Stenhouse had visited, and on the same day, Professor Westall said he wanted to see the local clergyman. Reverend Matheson came at once, driven by his sister. Professor Westall died two days later, and I was in the house with his son and Miss Westall when he passed away. I was the one who laid him out. I also witnessed his last will, which was written out in his own hand. This was sometime in the summer of 2005, but I don't remember the date. She was asked to confirm the date of his death. So why, I wonder, the paragraph referring to the will? Perhaps she thought it important to mention anything concerned with Peregrine's death. But the will was never questioned, was it? In any case, why should Candace Westall feel it necessary to fly to Toronto and see Grace Holmes in person? You're suggesting that the £10,000 was a payment for this letter. For the last paragraph in the letter? I think Grace Holmes had seen what Candace had endured at her father's hands, and I think she'd be happy to see justice done in the end to Candace and Marcus. Mr Kershaw, if I asked you whether Candace Westall on that last visit to you discussed the truth about her father's will, would you answer me? No, and I don't suppose you'd expect me to. That's why you won't ask. Hmm. But I can tell you this, Commander. Grace Holmes's letter was the least important part of the visit. Far more important was that Candace told me that our daughter had died. And she told me how. Yes, we had unfinished business. There were things both of us needed to say, and I think she died happier because she knew she could trust me. To be honest, that was all there had ever been between us. Not love, but trust. One last question, Mr Kershaw. When I telephoned a couple of days ago and you agreed to meet me, did you tell Candace Westall that I was coming? I phoned and told her. Thank you. And now, if you'll excuse me, I, I need to rest. I am glad you came, but we won't see each other again. I drove westwards from Bournemouth until, taking the coast road, I found a place where I could stop the car and look out to sea over Poole Harbour. In the past week, my mind and energies had been occupied only with the deaths of Rhoda Gradwin and Robin Boyton. But now there was my own future to face. Choices had been placed before me, most of them demanding or interesting, but until now I'd given them little thought. Only one life-changing thing was certain. My marriage to Emma, and about that there was no doubt. Nothing but the certainty of joy. And at last I knew the truth about those two deaths. Perhaps Philip Kershaw had been right. There was an arrogance in wanting always to know the truth, particularly the truth about human motives. 
the mysterious workings of another's mind. But it was time to get back to the old police cottage, to collect my bags and to be on my way. There was only one person now whom I longed to see. Arriving at the cottage, I opened the door. The fire had been relit, but the room was in darkness, except for the one lamp on a table by the fireside chair. Emma got up and came towards me, her face and dark hair burnished by the firelight. Darling, what on earth? Kate phoned me before they left for London. I thought you might like company on the drive home. In The Private Patient by P.D. James, Doug Leash was played by Richard Derrington. Kate Minskin by Deborah McAndrew, Benton by John Deep Moore, Marcus Westall by Adrian Grove, and Candice Westall by Alison Pettit. Sharon Bateman was played by Charlotte Worthing, Letty Frencham by Kate Layden, Collinsby by Andy Hockley, Jeremy Coxon by Mark Carey, Grace Holmes by Charlotte Westorham, and Philip Kershaw by Robert Lister. The narrator was Carolyn Pickles. The Private Patient was dramatised by Neville Teller and directed in Birmingham by Peter Leslie Wilde. This has been a Nostalgic Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.